Blog Talk Radio. If I speak for your followers and I speak for your ex-followers and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say, who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says, don't listen to your mom and dad, don't talk to your mom and dad, that's bad. Yep. I remember sitting there wishing I could just scream out loud and beg for help. But I knew if I did that, I would never see Mark again. This is the thing about real life. You can't experience the great things without the bad things. I felt like it would probably do better off if we didn't exist. And, um, you know, Pat came up with a plan on, on how to end it. He talks about a seven-year-old child. Even if he's referring to actually an adult, so let's say we change that to an adult. You say the woman shudders because the man keeps her even passionately. The fact is that she shudders. You do a big apology to me and give me my kids back. I'm still shocked by the evil. I, 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 yes, even to this day, when I see a video of a former friend or family member, I'm like, this is pure evil at work. And welcome to Come Get Some Extra Scientology Edition. I'm your host, Chris Kirby, my six man on your Twitter feed, also uh, CGS here uh, to follow the podcast. You can also email CGS here at gmail.com, and there's a YouTube channel, CGS here, and uh, website, Come Get Some. So uh, check all that out. Uh, so today I've got a uh, pretty lengthy conversation uh, with Nathan Rich. Uh, if you've seen his other conversations with Aaron Smith Levin, not to worry, this guy uh, can go, man. And uh, it's an interesting conversation all the same today. Plus, uh, it gets even more uh, intense next week as we get more into things and, and have a very interesting discussion uh, about more topics than what we cover today uh, on next week's edition of Part 2. But first, I want to address Percy Alley. Now, uh, you might remember uh, I had Leah Remini on this show. And uh, she really impressed the hell out of me in the way that she was so understanding. And uh, she really did not want to attack Kirstie uh, or even Tom Cruise or even uh, John Travolta. She wasn't into uh, attacking her peers in the entertainment industry. Also because she knew what it was like. She's been them before. So she's trying to be understanding about it. And uh, I thought that was really uh, amazing of her. Uh, I'm not sure if she's changed her stance on these people um, or not, but I will say that uh, I understand, but I don't because they're not like her exactly. Uh, for instance, there are people who tell you Tom Cruise is fully aware, and he was there present on uh, the premises while the slave labor is being done to uh, support his and, and David Miscavige's needs in once. Uh, at their beck and call. Um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest, uh, even if you go back to Spanky Taylor's story from Going Clear, um, whether or not he received her letter or not is a question, but um, John Travolta uh, would probably be uh, aware of what's going on. And when you talk about these people and their awareness and their, their involvement in things, or their knowingness, uh, knowingness that's Scientology work, uh, but their knowing of what's going on, they are um, they're complicit 
Um, you hear it, you see it all the time in memes and online. It's true. It compl- silence is complicity. Allowing it to go on is complicit. And there is a level uh, for many uh, celebrities, I believe, in that celebrity bubble, at the head in the sand and, and a willful ignorance uh, of, of public Scientologists. Just all the same. There's that whole, first of all, you protect yourself from seeing the truth. And then there's the whole, you know, allow the walk. Uh, and then those whole things are so good for you as a celebrity, you don't care to look. Why would you want to see the negativity, as John DeVolta will say? And that's that's one thing. You know, that's, that's the layer of remedy experience. So you made people wrong. You lied about things. You were dishonest about Xenu. But Kirstie kind of hit a level here where she's doing also-level operations. I mean, I understand fair game is, is something that that everybody in Scientology is encouraged to um, participate in based on uh, LRH policy. Of course, fair game being anything goes. If someone's an enemy of the church and tries to harm uh, Scientology, anything's, uh, anything's okay to do. And uh, Kirstie always taking full advantage of that. But I feel like this is really more of a mission than just defending your religion. Uh, Kirstie's long been known to black people just for asking simple, honest, innocent questions, which is, is, is fine with the whole willful ignorance thing and the not wanting to not wanting to hurt your religion and wanting to protect. But when it crosses over, as it has recently, so, you know, um, Jeffrey Augustine has done a very good job of, uh, of reporting on this and covering this in great detail. Um, I'll try to get a screenshot of it. Uh, someone else put up uh, the actual police report. Uh, from the event where Mike Rinder, you know, we, we talked about how Taryn is trying to get her father fired from A&E and have Disney fire him. And it's falling in deaf ears because you all know what's up with that. But um, the terrible attacks on Mike Rinder's character based on this event where his uh, family from Scientology that disconnected from him, uh, say they, they happened to see him <laughs> around town. And surrounded his car, yelling at him and and, and yelling obscenities, and it's all recorded on audio. And Kirstie Alley takes this opportunity to jump onto the uh, into the destroy Mike Rinder's reputation bandwagon and the smear campaign bandwagon. This is not willful ignorance at this point. No longer is it willful ignorance. You're talking about an actual outward attempt to destroy a man's reputation on behalf of his family that you know was lying. In Kirstie Alley's own words, as she posts and shills the whole idea of Mike Render being an abusive father and husband, she basically uh, uh, is saying it's true. She's using her celebrity to push false narratives as truth. Now, you say, well, she just knows that she's told, and she just believes that she's told because she's such a great Scientologist. But um, as Kirstie Alley puts in her own words… It's all documented, and everyone's telling her. It is documented. I've seen multiple people. People have all been blocked. It is documented, and people show her the documentation in print. People show her the documentation in video, and she doesn't look at it. But hey, look, if you tell me my best friend is trying to kill me in my sleep, I'm going to say you're full of crap. You're ridiculous. I'm not going to want to hear that crap. I'm not going to believe you. I know my friend better than you do. He's not trying to kill me. But then, after all these years of trying to tell me what horrible things my friend's capable of has been trying to do to me, you send me a video and say, here's video evidence showing 
he's trying to kill you in your sleep. I may not believe you, but I want to see the video, right? I want to see the video because what's going to happen is in my mind, as I'm so confident that you're lying to me and you're being dishonest and trying to hurt uh, my friend's reputation, I'm going to say, well, look, when I watch this video and I see he's not trying to kill me in my sleep, I'm going to say, look what these idiots are doing trying to say that this is true. Here's your evidence that these people are just apostates. They're just hateful bigots that don't like my religion or don't like my friend. That's the argument I would make. Or I would see it and go, oh my god, my friend's trying to kill me in my sleep. What else is true about? Well, uh, Chrissy doesn't know this stuff. She just walks. At this point, I believe she knows what she's doing. She readily defends Danny Masterton, Masterson, who's got six accusers, none of them looking for money. Just want justice and can't seem to get it yet, uh, yet so far. And she defends them readily and quickly and steadfast. But Alex Gilly gets, what, two accusers or something who want money, big cash settlements. And I'm not going to call them liars because I always said you never say someone's lying if you don't know the truth. But it's a lot fishier than to deal with Danny Masters, and she shares those charges. Yes, go get them. It's very clear what's going on here, and, and that really speaks to the character Kirstie Alley. Kirstie Alley is now among, in my mind, the worst offenders. She's up there with, with anyone in Osa, in my mind, who knows willingly and, and readily uh, lies and attacks people for no good reason. And then you have people who will question my saying this today and go, well, what are you going to do? You're going to attack all the Scientologists, and uh, when they come out, you're going to tell them how brave and how strong they are, and we're just going to give them all a big embrace, and, and, and how can you do that? Um, and, and that kind of argument is usually made by somebody uh, like Alonzo from Alonzo's blog. And if you've ever seen this video, this guy's like, if Marty Rathbun, he's like Marty Rathbun Light with the whole ASC, the anti-Scientology cult thing where um, – where he's, he's, he's like if Marty Rathbun and Harvey Firestein had a baby. So this, this guy, he makes valid arguments because there are people who take the fight against Scientology to the extreme, take their arguments to the extreme. But then he takes them out of context and completely generalizes things or, or the things he'll say to you when he pops into your, your thread on uh, social media don't really match what you're saying. So you'll say Kirstie Alley is a liar. She's one of the worst. She's terrible, and she really uh, has crossed the line with this attack on Mike Rinder with these lies in this smear campaign. And he'll come on and say, oh, I guess she has to say all Scientologists are bad. You're just going to attack Scientologists, and then he come out and then embrace them. The fact is, first of all, nobody that I know, nobody that I communicate with believes all Scientologists are bad. Um, I said it before, said it a million times. Anti-Scientology, not anti-Scientologist. Some of these people are just as much victims as the next person. Now, if you want to break it down to the people like Kirstie who say and do the things she's doing now, the terrible lies, the terrible attacks on someone's character, now you're talking about something a little bit different. But the answer to your question, if you're going to narrow it down to the actual people that we're attacking in anti-Scientology, the actual people we're attacking – who are committing these uh, these offenses against people? Yes, the answer is yes. Um, you know, people like yeah, are a different story because she wasn't doing the kind of things that Kirstie's doing now. But yeah, um, case in point, Mike Render. Now, uh, people might be uh, surprised to hear this, or might not. Some people might not want to hear this. 
Um, of all the people I respect, and there's a lot of people I've gotten to know uh, since joining this fight against these abuses that um, I have a lot of respect and appreciation for. Uh, not many more people than Mike Rinder that I respect as much as I expect him because the more you've done, the more you've been involved in, he was right-hand man to, to, uh, to, to David Miscavige practically. The more wrong you've done that you can step forward and say I was wrong and show legitimate remorse and say I want to make it right I can't respect anything more than that that's the hardest thing that is hard that does take strength and that is brave so if Kirstie left tomorrow I don't think she will if she showed legitimate convincing remorse I don't think she will and suggest that she wants to make it right yes you do you embrace her. You tell her she's brave and strong, and you support her. Of course you do. So it's ridiculous. These arguments are ridiculous. I understand why they come up, but we got to keep things in context. Uh, there's hope for everyone. And speaking of hope, I hope you enjoyed today's interview with uh, part one with Nathan Rich. Guest was on season two of Scientology in the Aftermath on the same episode as Tara Riley. Uh, please welcome to the show Nathan Rich. Hey, Nathan. Hey, hey, everybody. Hey, Chris. How's it going? Very good, very good. Thank you for being on the show. Um, we met in person at the last Clearwater event. What did you think of that event? It was cool. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of uh, people from the show. There was a lot of uh, kind of the public, viewers, and, you know, um, everybody seemed really cool. And uh, it was a fun time, you know. It was it was nice to be back in uh, Clearwater for the first time since uh, 1999. Did it feel weird? I, I didn't ask you. I asked some other people, but it, it feel weird for you to be like one street over from from the uh, flag land base. Um, it was kind of surreal for two reasons. One was that I mean I actually spent a large part of my childhood in Clearwater and Clearwater area, so it was kind of weird to be back in that world. And then it was also uh, a bit surreal to see all of the, you know, the foot soldiers, the Sea Org members and everything like that again, because, um, you know, if you go around the rest of the country and the rest of the world, no one's even heard of Scientology, let alone, you know, the Sea Org. And so it was kind of crazy to be right back, like right next to them, you know. It's kind of like going to a uh, tribal nation that hasn't yet discovered fire <laughs> or the wheel. <laughs> it's like, um, so so yeah. you, you came in, I think you said your first auditing, was it five years old? It was, uh, well, I mean, my first memory, I, I was going to say in this lifetime, my first memory was uh, being in session. Um, and uh, so I, I started at a very early age. I mean, everything in my entire life um, revolved entirely around my mother. And um, she was a very devout Scientologist. I mean, she was, from talking to Aaron, it sounds like she might have been, you know, kind of more, I don't want to say extreme, but more, you know, into it than than a lot of other Scientologists that, you know, that, that people have known. So I kind of grew up in a situation where 
Scientology was just very, very, very much a part of every decision that anyone made in my whole family from literally as early as I can remember. So, yeah, it's pretty pretty early on. So, remind me, your mother was, was she staff or was she Sea Org? No, my, my mother was never staff or Sea Org, which is kind of where it gets, you know, surprising for some people. She was always public. She was OT3. Um... And my aunt was in the Sea Org, and my and my cousin, her daughter, was uh, in the Cadet Org. And then uh, nobody else in the family was staff or Sea Org. So it was kind of uh, we we sort of had the one aunt and daughter who were sort of the gung ho Sea Org, and then there was everybody else that was public. And then of course I was in the Sea Org for about you know two months or something when I was a teenager. Okay, so your your mom was just a public that really took it to heart and did everything exactly the way uh, all Ron wants it to be done, basically. Yeah, I mean, she was... Uh, it's kind of weird to talk about her in this way for me because it it's, it's interesting to see how people react to it as if it's, you know, it's different than other Scientologists. But, of course, me growing up in that environment, it just seemed totally normal to me. I just assumed that's that was – I mean, early on, I just assumed that was life. And then later, I just assumed that was Scientologists. And kind of after I've been out of Scientology for a very long time, I'm realizing that not every Scientologist viewed Scientology the same way. But, I mean, uh, I talk about this quite a bit in the, um, in the book I'm writing, which is um, – Every moral decision, every fork in the road, any time that there was any sort of need for uh, advice or guidance, it was straight to uh, straight to Lafayette's writings. I mean, my mom and I would sit there and read policies together, you know? Wow. So, yeah. So... Do you think that feeds into some of the denial by current Scientologists? Because I think even more so the celebrities than the public, there's a bubble around them where their experience isn't the same as the Sea Org. It's not the same as staff, and it's not the same as what the kids went through at the ranches or in the cadet orgs. Do you think that feeds into the, the Wolf Wagner and so they go, not my experience. I think this is great. It's been good for me. Um, so I, I used to be very sure about this type of uh, question, what what the answer was. Um, but you know, after hearing Aaron's talks with many people, I, I I do see that a lot of people seem to have kind of a, as I mentioned before, a little bit different view of Scientology than I did, and that my I felt that my my mother did. But I can I can explain to you how I how I would have answered this question before I ever heard of Leah Remini Scientology in the aftermath, and I never you know before I had ever heard of any of this, uh, this this whole movement and was not part of it or anything, is that um, the way I would have answered it then is that I would say they're not being willfully ignorant. No, they're not. They don't consider themselves in a bubble they don't none of that stuff is even really how they look at it uh, is how I would have answered it I would have said that the feeling that you have 
and I, I you know, I, again, I have to be careful not to say everybody has this. So I'll, I'll just talk about myself. The feeling that I would have as a Scientologist looking around at people who are saying, hey, this is messed up about Scientology was a very interesting feeling. Um, so I, I start from the position of Scientology is correct. And then I say, well, I know that people that are antagonistic or critical to Scientology are essentially criminals. These are people that, that long story short, they can't confront their, their withholds. And so they don't want other people to know about their withholds. And so they, they don't want people to be enlightened into being able to find out each other's withholds. And so they want to squash Scientology because that's the thing that would enlighten people. I mean, you don't think about that in a split second, but that's the general viewpoint. And so by default, if I see somebody and they come up to me and they say, hey, isn't it weird that, I'm just making this up, that you know, uh, L. Ron Hubbard's uh, son you know, was, was gay or something like that? Uh, some kind of challenging, um, provocative question. I would, because I'm already assuming that the tech is totally correct and that Scientology is the truth, I'm therefore looking at this person and thinking, well, that's either completely non sequitur and or it's false and or it may have some kind of truth to it, but it's skewed and warped to serve a purpose. And so what is that purpose? Because I know the tech works and I know that uh, L. Ron Hubbard, you know, essentially is the, the guy who brought us this wonderful tech. So what is the intention of this person is really what the focus becomes. So as they're talking to me, as they're trying to point things out, the only thing that's going through my mind is, okay, what's their game? What's their intention? What are they trying to do? What are they, um, you know, what are they attacking Scientology for? What have they got to hide? They're, they want to quash Scientology because they don't want others to become more aware and to see those things that they're hiding. Um, and so for me, it was never about, oh, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that, at least not explicitly. It was just really more like whether or not they're telling any kind of truth is totally irrelevant. It's really just that I have a thing that I know works and they are trying to challenge that for their own personal reasons and that's their problem and their um, fault, and it has nothing to do with me or the truth that I hold with me. And so, so that's how I would that. have viewed that. So to simplify that, because you use a lot of Scientology terms there, but um, basically what you're saying is if I said that to you, I must be trying to ruin what you're doing. Like I don't like that you're doing that because I don't understand it, so I'm going to ruin it for you too. It's kind of like 1.1 on the tone scale. It's still hostility. Yeah, it's along those lines. Um, now, more technically, I wouldn't necessarily have to come down on 1.1 as, uh, you know, where I would identify this person as being. It might be antagonism. It might be, uh, you know, something even l lower than 1.1. But 1.1 is, a, yeah, that's a common resting place that, that, that I would have said that these types of people would be in. They're covertly hostile towards life. You know, they're, they're, they're appearing normal and they're actually have hostility inside of them. 
And then the sort of reasons for that have a lot to do, at least in the, the Scientology beliefs, have a lot to do with their own crimes and their own, um, you know, what, what, what they call withholds. And that, so that's why often you'll see in um, Scientology sort of confrontation videos, you'll see the Scientologists say things like, what are your crimes? What are you right. hiding? They're not just saying that as some sort of like uh, counterattack. They're being serious. They're, they're really saying, we know that you have crimes. It's the only reason that you would ever think about attacking Scientology because Scientology is damn near perfect and it works and it's true and it's going to save everybody and da-da-da-da. So if you're attacking that, the only possible reason is that either you specifically have crimes that you're hiding uh, or you are, I mean, literally like, you're on drugs and therefore that's your crime that you're hiding or you're just literally insane. I mean, there's no possible way that you could just be an innocent Joe Blow walking down the street and say, you know, I don't really like that about Scientology. Uh, I'm going to go, you know, find out what's going on with that. Okay. So, so that's how you would have answered it uh, back then. What changed? What do you, what is your answer to that question today? Um, so now that, I mean, that to me, that was just how I assumed every Scientologist viewed everything. Um, but, but now that I've kind of listened to a lot of, uh, Aaron Smith Levin's, um, podcasts, uh, uh, interviews rather on his channel growing up in Scientology, I have seen, you know, ex Sea Org members, ex public, ex whatever. And, um, there's a, there's common threads, but there's a lot of people who view things a bit different than than I did when I was younger, and I I think that for some of those people and and may, for some other people, not me, probably uh, you know they they could have been in a bubble. They they could have been hearing evidence coming in, evaluating it, and then kind of going, well, I'm going to discount that. And, and, and for me, that wasn't the process. I, I was more of just like the evidence that I'm being presented with isn't even, it doesn't even exist. It's not even, doesn't, you know, it's not even real. Well, I guess that goes along with the idea that everybody handles the information that's brought to them differently. The one thing that those two answers or those two experiences have in common is either way, you've been validated in your mind with that critical person saying. Yes, exactly. And, and in that sense, you could describe them both as a bubble. So maybe I, maybe, uh, maybe I was in a bubble, but, but certainly the way that I thought I was dealing with it sounds different in my mind than the way I'm hearing other people describe how they dealt with it sometimes. So, but you're right. Um, a person coming up to me and telling me, Anything that I viewed as antagonistic about Scientology, asking me any questions that I viewed as not general, curious in nature, but something with some kind of suggestion or uh, uh, pr provocativeness or anything like that, I would just immediately assume, you know, like I said, I would assume that there's there's a, a underlying motive that is essentially evil. 
Um, and, and I would, I would not personally, I, I would not even process the evidence, you know? Yeah, I'd say there's definitely a stark difference in just believing everyone else is full of shit and just understanding these people are bringing you real information and not caring. And I imagine there's probably other versions of uh, mindsets when they get brought these things as well. But but I think those two are probably the main things you'll see. I, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it, throughout my younger life, there were times when information would come across my desk, so to speak, that was, you know, that were outpoints, as they would call it in Scientology, outpoints with Scientology or with uh, uh, Lafayette. Things like, for example, when I was a Scientologist, I learned that, um, I learned that that L. Ron Hubbard's son was not a Scientologist. Somehow I, I, I found out about that, and I asked my mom about it, and she basically said something like, oh, he's just really, he's just really out ethics, and he's, he's a SP. And I remember thinking, how does that make sense? Like, how could L. Ron Hubbard's son be an SP? Like, right. it just, it, it really was something that stuck in my mind. Like, how is that actually possible? Because... Scientology is totally true, and L. Ron Hubbard is really who we think he is, and he has, he's, I mean, he is the definition of OT, and yet he's not able to detect an SP Thetan and stop him from entering into his son's body. Like, the whole thing just seemed very strange. Like, how could that happen? Right. So the point of that is that um, if evidence comes across a Scientologist desk that, that a Scientologist who thought in a similar way that I did, I would say that evidence is still impactful and it's not immediately impactful, but it, it does slowly get in if, if we're all lucky. I mean, because that was one of many things where I started to go, you know, this is, doesn't make as much sense as it does to my mom. It's not making as much sense to me. That's one example, you know? Okay, so so I'm going to go back again, and uh, so we'll tell a little bit of your story here. Uh, something that really stands out to me is the reason your earliest memory, if I'm not mistaken, maybe one of the reasons your earliest memory of auditing at five was you were crying over it. Like, you didn't want to do it that badly. What, what, what made you cry? So, um, I mean, this is definitely... Um, something that I, of course, I bring up in my book as well. But th basically, um, and for those people who aren't super familiar with with auditing and being in session, basically, it, it's kind of like procedural therapy is, is kind of the shortest way you could possibly describe it. But basically, one aspect of it, which actually is almost never mentioned that I've seen, which I think is actually kind of interesting, is that. Um, if you try to leave a session in the middle of the session, the person administering the session, the, the auditor, will stop you from leaving. They will physically stand in your way and stop you from leaving and do everything in their power to get you back in the chair to finish the process. And so, um, I mean, in and I think in legal terms, that's that's uh, that's a entrapment. No, it's not entrapment. It's that's 
entrapment is when you set up a like a a crime scenario to try to suggest someone to make a crime and then arrest them for it. It's um it's a kind of kidnapping. What is it called? Um, See, I thought anyway. entrapment was part of the wording of it. I know entrapment by itself is that, but there's some kind of like God, yeah, I can't remember the term. Um, yeah, it's, but I, it's some know what you're talking about. form of kidnapping, I think. Yeah, it. I, I believe it is illegal. I'm not sure what loopholes they've got there, but I believe it's illegal. Um, so anyway, when I was uh, very, very young, um, you know, my big thing was I just wanted to be normal. I wanted to play. I wanted to go do stuff that I saw on television and that I knew other kids were doing and be a normal guy. And um, I ended up in the, these auditing sessions for... Um, you know, quite often it was sort of seemed like it was a monthly and then it sort of became weekly and then it was more than, you know, it's multiple times per week. And I was very young. And in those days, uh, it was kind of like me talking to the auditor about, you know, his questions and they might be questions about, uh, what did you do today? Oh, tell me more about that. And kind of digging around to see, you know, looking back, it sort of looks like almost exactly what you'd expect from beginning auditing. I mean, it wasn't sort of deep. It was just kind of introductory level stuff, trying to find out if I had done wrong things. Oh, I, you stole this. Oh, how did you feel about it? Oh, you lied about this. Let's talk. And it seemed to sort of focus on things that I had done that were like wrong, you know, whatever five-year-olds do that's, that's wrong, you know, didn't clean their, their room or whatever. And, um, my first memory is actually earlier than that in being in session. So it wasn't exactly when I was five. It must have been um, four, three, four. I mean, it was really, really young. And um, anyway, so I wanted to leave and go play with a ball or something. And I was trying to get out. And, of course, the guy's blocking me. And I ended up, you know, laying on the on the carpet and just I was crying and I was you know, what Scientologists would call dramatizing. And I was, um, uh, wanted to leave. I was very upset and I just wanted to leave. And that kind of flash is the earliest memory that I can recall. And, uh, and so that's sort of all, you know, that's just one of many, many times, but that's the earliest one that I can recall. Right, so the term we're looking for is false imprisonment. So, yeah, uh, there you go. So you were stuck. You couldn't leave, and you wanted to leave, and it was like you're. It's almost like child abuse. It's torture and torment. Um, the, these questions. I'm pretty sure we all know the answer to this, but these questions they ask you in audits at that young an age, they're the same questions adults are asked. Is that not correct? It's, uh, I mean, obviously they don't do sort of what we call like the heavier stuff. I mean, they're not they're not saying stuff like, oh, have you ever thought about having sex with your brother or, you know, whatever. I, I don't have a brother, but, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but I do remember being very young and, and so, like things sort of along that lines would be asked, but they wouldn't be so specific. So I, I think somebody from the Sea Org could probably answer this better than me because they'll kind of know what the protocol is. But I do remember being asked a lot of sort of like, well, that's weird. Like, why are you asking me such a strange, you know, question? But I also know that later in, you know, when I was a teenager and stuff, the questions were a lot more obviously not something you would ever want to ask a kid. Um, 
So it's kind of, I would say it's in between. It's definitely a lot of stuff that's like, why are you asking children this? This is screwy. But it's not as extreme as, as Scientology later gets with its weirdo questions. Okay. And uh, a lot of what you say you did, uh, practicing uh, Scientology, um, reading policy with your mom, you said a lot that you did this for your mom to make her happy. But what would have happened if you refused? Um, so when I was in auditing, um, you know, refusal meant being blocked at the door and, be, you know, this is just basically being stuck in, in the session. And then, you know, the auditors had kind of this, they had this um, process, like not process, they had this sort of method that they would use where if I kind of did what they wanted and got through the session, then I would get some kind of reward. Like one, one of the guys had a motorcycle. And then of course, if I was good, Oh, I got to ride the motorcycle and that kind of stuff. Um, so Inside of auditing, the, it was kind of the indoctrination there was do what we say, play along, everything will be great. Um, but uh, outside of, of that world, when I was doing courses and um, stuff like that, when I'm actually at the orgs, um, not wanting to do that, the orgs themselves didn't seem to care that much. Like if, if I was like, oh, I, I don't want to do this, they would kind of go, okay, uh, you know, that's fine. But then they would basically tell my mother and, and then my mother would be, you know, it's the, the extreme disappointment of why is my child fighting me and reality in the family? I mean, it's, it's exactly the same as, um, the same type of reaction that I get, you know, watching TV and movies. If I see that, like, a kid has gone out and, you know, been out drinking all night and, you know, lied to their parents and snuck out that, that type of reaction from the parents was a super, you know, upset and disappointed. And it's like a big deal. That's the type of big deal reaction I would get if it was like, I didn't, I skipped on course or like, I didn't want to go into session. It was like a big deal to, to my mom. So you just didn't want to disappoint her. Yeah. A lot of my early life was, obviously revolved around my, my mother because I didn't have anybody else. And she, her life revolved around Scientology. So I, my life was basically doing Scientology to um, appease her and to keep harmony in, in the house. And, um, and that's something that I, I talk about a lot. I know I keep bringing up my book. I'm not, this is not a uh, book uh, uh, sales uh, <laughs> uh, interview, I promise. But um, you know, it's just because I'm writing it now, so I'm thinking about it a lot. But um, uh, I think that the the dynamic that I had between, you know, that that there was between myself and my mother heavily revolved at when I was an, you know, early uh, a young guy. It really heavily evolved uh, revolved around um, me doing Scientology and kind of toughing it out for her, you know. So, if, if you watch, and I know this is a hot point for you probably, but if you watch the videos, the smear campaign against you that came up after being on Leah Remini's show, uh, you would think you got sent to the ranch because you were a bad kid, but that's not exactly how that happened, is it? 
No, I mean the I I saw the videos. Actually, Tara and I were um, were on a call when our episode aired to kind of support each other and just kind of talk about it. And um, as soon as it aired, that somebody told us about those videos, and and I watched um, them. You know, we we watched them, and um, you know, I, I made a response video where I said some of this, but you know, my first initial reaction was, oh my god, that's what they look like. I mean, I hadn't seen them in so long, I almost didn't even recognize them, was my first thought. And then when I was hearing them kind of paint this picture of my life, it was so disingenuous and it was so clearly manufactured. I mean, it, it's, it's the type of thing that they're, they're very intentional in how they put it in a setting where you can't, there's no way to like respond to it. And the reason for that is that it's, it's, all manufactured and so for example one one of the first lines is like the only reason that you know nathan ended up be, going to the ranch is because you know the only other option was jail and it's like what are you talking i was eight years old <laughs> you know and the, and the second time that i got sent to the ranch right the first one had a lot of the physical abuse and the second time was a lot of the emotional abuse and some physical abuse but less and the second time I got sent, I was 14, right? I had just come out of the Sea Org. So are you talking, like, am I, I wasn't kicked out of the Sea Org. I just stopped going. I was like, all right, this is not working. So are they saying that, like, the average Sea Org member uh, is on the border of going to jail? I mean, what were my crimes at that time? And so then they spin the timeline. So then they start talking about, oh, he was hanging out with the wrong crowd. And it's like the people that the kids that I was hanging out with at the time that they're talking about were kids that I met at the ranch, literally. So the wrong crowd is kids from the ranch when I was uh, 14. And I, I so by the time I had uh, gone to the ranch the first time when I was eight, I had stole I stole some bubble gum from a grocery store and I stole some baseball cards uh, from a baseball like from a collector shop, which I don't even know if they still exist, but. There used to be these things called collectors uh, uh, shops, and you could go and like buy some baseball cards. And so I, I stole some, and I got caught. Um, and that was it. So I, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't the type of kid to get in the fights, or you know, I wasn't a nasty kid. I wasn't I wasn't like you know a little brat. I was just a a kid that was probably too smart for his own good, and I wasn't really properly uh, managed or parented. And I, and I don't, by the way, I don't use that in this context as an attack on my mother. I think that I, I, you know, I was the only child of a single parent. So I think even if everything was peachy and wonderful between my mother and I, there was still something missing there. So I wasn't really parented enough. And yeah, I stole some stuff. I mean, what's, where's the jail? You know, I mean, I, yes, you can go to jail for stealing, but not when you're eight. And so um, when I was 14, the, by the time I was 14, the worst thing I had done before I got sent back to the ranch, the worst thing, was I snuck out uh, and hung out with kids from the first ranch, weirdly enough, and they got me drunk once. I drank once. I hadn't had sex. I hadn't done drugs. I, I wasn't smoking weed. I mean, nothing. I was just, I wasn't popping pills. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I was smoking cigarettes occasionally and I, and I had gotten drunk once and, um, 
and that was it. That was my only other option was jail. That's what triggered them. And then the video goes on to give all these examples of what a hardened, you know, MS-13 psychopath I am by saying stuff like, oh, he was uh, uh, huffing, you know, nitrous oxide in a, um, in a grocery store and he, he got into heroin and all this stuff. And it's like, yes, that stuff is true. That's about uh, eight years after they sent me to the ranch. That's during a time when I was homeless. So, uh, some like, you know, yeah, I got into heroin when I was on the streets. So what does that have to do with why you sent me to the ranch when I was 14? And so they, they mix it up in a blender and they, they intentionally give you this notion that like I was born with a bullet in my teeth and I was, uh, you know, Mr. Criminal and then they tried to save me uh, with their last-ditch effort, and, oh, they couldn't do it, and now I'm just this uh, total liar making stuff up about this or that. It's like, you know, people that talk to me generally don't get the impression that I'm making a bunch of stuff up because I don't, like, what's the point of that? I don't have any, I don't have any, like, agenda. I'm just telling people what happened in my life. It's not um, some wild and different and fascinating, interesting thing to me. It's just the story that happened to me. And I like to compare to see, you know, what happened to other people. And, um, anyway, I sort of rambled there on the video cause it's kind of a big topic, but it was, you know, to be honest with you, I haven't seen them or heard from them in so long that I, I wasn't that emotional about it. Um, but it was disappointing. It was actually right. disappointing to see them do that. Because a part of me was, a part of me was surprised that I saw my, my cousins and my, my aunts, because a part of me thought surely at least one of them would not be a Scientologist by now, but they all are. So do you think you were sent to the ranch at eight more over the stolen goods or more just so your mom can focus some more on what she's doing with Scientology and to also be able to tell someone when she goes to auditing or ethics that she's handling her son. Uh, that Well, that last part is, a, is an interesting part of the question. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, look, it's tough to, I mean, she was 22 when she had me. Okay. So by the time I was, you know, seven or eight, she was not, you know, just turning 30. So she's pretty young. And, um, you know, I, I think it was probably tough to handle raising a boy and that's okay. So that's kind of the, the framework that we're in. It's already kind of a tough job. And on top of that, when you come from the world of, you know, I'm going to be raising my son to help clear the planet and I'm looking up to Dave, you know, to Mr. Miscavige as this wonderful example of who we should all be. And, you know, the sea organ, ah, oh, rah, rah, let's do this. And then you look at your son and it's like, he stole some baseball cards and he doesn't seem interested in Scientology. It's kind of like, well, we got to fix this. You know, and I think that was a, a large part of it. And um, 
you know, it's inter- the second part that you said is pretty interesting because I know that's that is a common motivator for families to deal with their um, relatives and later in, in life that that definitely was some of the reasons that <clears throat> excuse me some of the reasons that um, a few mem- a few members of my family reached out me for, to me um, when I was in my twenties was for that was was because they couldn't go up the bridge further unless they you know handled me um but i don't think to answer your question i don't think when i was eight that that was the reason i think that it was really just about my mother's disappointment in me did she know what she was sending you into or had no way of knowing no i mean it, the ranch opened in like 87 and she i got sent there in uh in nine in 1990 so it was pretty new and uh carol kingsley and uh, debbie mason and carol kingsley they had a school in la and that school was not a, a punitive school or anything like it. it was just a regular scientology school so i i don't think that there was that anybody would have thought that this ranch was going to be what it was now i'm sure that she knew that this was not a regular fun cub scouts type of ranch i know i I, obviously she didn't think that but i think that she probably thought it was going to be tough love for those kids that are you know being down stats i think that was probably you know okay let's whip them in shape and get get some snap and pop into them and get them uh you know uh, get them interested in being on course and going up the bridge i think that's probably how it was sold to her um but Having said that, you know, during the course of the eight months and 11 days that I was there when I was eight, she would come out most months, once a month. And I did try to tell her about the physical abuses there. And um, and I and basically they had ways of dealing with that that I kind of detail uh, in in the in the one of the chapters about the ranch in my book. But um, basically they they had some pretty sneaky, interesting ways to deal with parents when their kids would tell them, hey, they're doing this to us, they're doing that to us. So if she was in a situation where if she had trusted me and believed me, then she would have known that they were abusing us. And instead she chose to believe in the in Wally Hanks and the staff members there like um Scott Hewlett and uh Mike Shower and, and other um people like that, Ross Hewlett, other people who were security guards and enforcers in this sort of um uh pretty pretty horrible little uh corner of the world. Okay, so so yeah, Wally Hanks was the guy you dealt with. Um he just passed away this past year. Did did you say, did I see this right? I'm trying to remember. There was a picture or video of him recently, I think denying the things being said about him, and his paddle was framed in the background on the wall. Is that right? Am I imagining this? No, so... Um... I don't know if I can say exactly who it was. I'm not sure if that person would want me to disclose it because it kind of has to do with uh, uh, a TV program that I won't name. But a person that I know who has no reason to make any of this up went out to interview um, Wally 
and recorded the uh, recorded the interview. And while he was there, he did see the Board of Justice, which was the paddle, the name of the paddle. And when uh, Wally died, according to a relative of Wally's, who told me this on Facebook in a private chat, and you know I can confirm that he is related to Wally, he said that when Wally died, he still had the paddle on his wall. So um, Wally was not... Uh, ashamed of any of this and you know something that they didn't uh, show on the aftermath uh, episode because you know as I've mentioned many times on uh, Aaron's um, interviews it's it was just way too it was just way too short I think to cover this type of subject uh, in depth I think they did a good job but um, I think there's a lot to talk about but anyway there, there are inter, there are conversations with Wally Hanks on the internet on YouTube where you can hear him talking about the ranch and his views on what how it went and how, what he thinks about Scientology supposedly and you know he talks about it. it's it's clear that you I mean you can clearly hear his voice you can clearly compare it to the um, audio of him um, beating the kid Marco. Um, and it's him. So that's, you know, that he, the fact that he could deny that is obviously ridiculous. And, you know, he was, he was an ex-Marine. He was, um, you know, he was a Vietnam vet and he was a big, scary guy to, to us. And, um, and he was proud of that, that time period. He viewed it, I think, as, you know, he, he ran a rough and tumble ranch and really whipped kids into shape. And then, you know, Scientology just kind of, you know, abandoned him. But, you know, uh, the story, the real story actually is that he was accused of child molestation by some of the cho- uh, the, the females there. Do you believe the that? Girls. Yeah, I, I know it's true, actually, because I am personal friends with a guy who I knew, personally knew, at both of those ranches. He had been there the entire time. And he told me in a recorded conversation the whole entire story. He was there the entire time, every detail, exactly who knew what, even the names of the people who made the accusations. And then I talked to them on Facebook, and they said, yes, that's what happened, et cetera, et cetera. So the show didn't really want to touch it because it's it's very tricky to kind of put that stuff on television without really, really having your lawyers and your this and your that, I think is probably what they were. And plus, it's of course, it's very hard to prove anything that happened with no witnesses from 30 years ago. But do I believe it? Yeah, I do believe it. I, I don't I don't see I cannot imagine why all these people who are seeking nothing would be lying to me in private channels about rumors that I, that I had heard. And there are people that I actually know in real life. So, yeah, I, I have no reason at all to doubt it. You know, it's one thing I haven't seen a lot of in the Scientology uh, or ex-Scientology community. I haven't seen a lot of people looking for cash settlements or or looking to sue for money because they were abused. I see people just wanting to get the truth out. Yeah. I mean, for myself, um, 
you know, I've I've had a long struggle. You know, I was homeless for about seven years. So did the thought cross my mind of, hey, you know, can I get some money from the church? Uh, yeah, it crossed my mind, but it, it just seemed like something that was t- unwinnable and something that I literally couldn't even get the ball rolling on because I was homeless. And then I started to think, well, maybe it's been past that sort of seven years, statute of limitations. And then, you know, I, I'm not a you know legal expert. I don't know what the hell's going on. So um, eventually when I finally did have a, a job, I actually did reach out to a lawyer um, who had previously won a lawsuit against Scientology and for something unrelated. And I just talked to him on the phone and I just basically said, look, here's my story. Um, is there anything that I can do? I was actually mostly interested in getting my PC folders, to be honest with you, but, um, you know, money wouldn't have hurt me. Yeah. You know, I had at least 11 folders, so that should tell you that I've got, you know, a lot of history with them. And, um, and I just felt like it's kind of weird and slimy that they have all this kind of personal stuff about me from when I was a minor and I don't have any way to get it, that seems wrong to me. And so, anyway, I talked to him, and, and he basically said, um, you know, that we should meet in person to discuss it, uh, because he, he, you know, he was really a bit sort of sketchy talking about it on the phone, because he, you know, he wasn't sure if I was like a plant trying to get info from him, or, sure. you know, because this is how Scientology operates. They literally will have people call up and pretend like there's somebody else and whatever. And I understood that. But um, it sounded like he, you know, he's very lawyerish. So he's really talking a lot about hard facts and data and this and proof and evidence. And I'm kind of going like, I'm just a guy who was homeless for a super long time. I have nothing. All I have is my story. And I'm sort of realizing as I'm talking to him, how is that going to, you know, that's not going to do anything. That's just me making some wild claim. So I didn't pursue it. And then um, later on, you know, in sort of more recent years, um, I, I have thought a bit more about my PC folders, although I'm not like a, you know, I'm not like a revenge kind of guy. Like I'm, I don't want to like get them back, uh, get Scientology back for all the, you know, stuff that's happened. But I, I do want to get my PC folders. You know, it seems nuts to me that, that they wouldn't, you know, have to give that back. I mean, keep in mind that at no point in time did I ever do any Scientology services when I was an adult. So why would they have any rights to that? I don't right. know. Like, anyway. What other use is that to them other than to use it against you? Well, I, yeah, I can tell you what, what they, what their message is, what their message of why they need it is so that next lifetime, if I come walking through the doors and say, hey, I want to, uh, you know, uh, take your personality test. And then I end up being, a, 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 and this is, it sounds ridiculous, but this is literally what the reason is, at least according to how I understood it. And then basically I get on lines and I'm, I'm in Scientology and then they, at some point or another, connect me to the previous life and they say, hey, whoa, 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 look at all this, uh, you know, stuff that you went through. Here's all your PC folders. And they literally chain the PC folders together and then I got to deal with all that stuff too. I mean, that's 
is weird. It's almost weird to say it, but that's what, what, funny what, it, what, what it's that, for. Yeah. What's funny about that explanation is all the people I've talked to personally on the air, all the people I've heard talk to other people or in interviews, I've never heard anyone ever quantify that they ever came back as a previous life clear, right? And were attached to their old person. Like it hasn't happened. It doesn't happen. Yeah. Well that's 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 because you're only talking to those people who uh were too PTS to themselves or were secretly <laughs> SPs or they're just too degraded. And all those people that are coming back lifetime after lifetime and getting back into Scientology, they're in it to win it, and they're at the top of the uh, uh, corporation. So that's obviously why. It's not because there's none of them. It's because, you know, they're all there. There's so many of them, but you just don't get access to them. Right. Okay, I get what you're saying there. <laughs> I'm not going to take that literally <laughs> because it's just like the people who uh, have our past life clear that still got to sign a second billion year contract. <laughs> it's just yeah, the yeah. thing is hilarious. Yeah, and you know what is interesting about signing the one billion year contract that I signed when I was fourteen is I don't remember anything on there about check here to sign for a billion years or check here if you're continuing a previous <laughs> billion year contract. <laughs> from last lifetime. Nine hundred and ninety nine years left on my contract. Come on guys. Yeah. I mean <laughs> It's kind of like, wait, am I supposed to sign another billion? Is this a double contract? Because I was already in the Sea Org last life. I mean, what are you guys doing to me here? Um, but, I mean, it's like they forgot that, like, oh, wait, we're, we're supposed to come back. That's our motto. We come back. So maybe people would actually come back, and therefore we should allow for those people to come back and continue their contract rather than having to do a new one. I mean, it's little, little cracks like that where it's like, do you guys actually even believe this? Because it seems like you might want to put – you know, <laughs> hey, I was just, I was in the Sewer Glass lifetime check checkbox or something. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, if if you're a past life pre clear, aren't you supposed to be able to remember, especially if you were in OT eight? Well, the interesting thing there is that. Um, just being a clear is supposed to have, you know, you're supposed to have a perfect memory at that, at that point. Now, uh, nobody ever elaborates on if that's supposed to include the past lives, which uh, presumably it's not supposed to, since you don't get into past lives stuff uh, necessarily that early. But um, I think it's because after you die, uh, excuse me, after you drop your body, um, you are, you know, normally you're going off to uh, Mars or the moon to go get re-implanted, right? So get your memory wiped and sent back down. But Scientologists are encouraged not to go to those, but rather just go ahead and pick up another body. Um, so if they're actually following this stuff, if you're OT, um, then, you know, yeah, your next lifetime, you should remember it. Now, I, I do want to point out, this is something I specifically asked my mother about. And I can tell you what her answer was to this. Um, okay. So she said, the reason that we don't, you know, the reason that you don't see a bunch of like 15-year-old people with perfect 
uh, past life recall that can prove it and what whatnot, is that, yes, all that stuff I just said, sure, that can all happen. But then what happens is you have to imagine being in this 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 body, okay? You just you just wake up and you're in this body that you can't move and you can't do anything, you can't function. You're hypersensitive to everything. You're just crying. You're totally disoriented, and you remember everything. Okay, so you remember dying in that fire was the example she gave. You remember dying in the fire the life before or whatever, and you're taught. You know, you're trying to express things. And yet nobody around you understands you, et cetera. Long story short, you're a baby, okay? And life goes on. Months go by, weeks go by. And because you're so young, as you're younger, your experience of time is much, uh, well, I don't know if it would be slower or faster, but basically time is very long. Like each day is a huge, long thing. And so basically um, by the time you actually can even talk, it's been so long that you've been in this new environment that you kind of just let the past go and you don't even really remember it anymore. And you're just in this new world and the previous world is just so irrelevant. It just seems like some faraway dream. And then basically by the time you're, you know, uh, a kid that we would call a kid, like some eight, nine-year-old kid or whatever, you're just so into the current world you know, reality, the, anything previous or anything is so long behind you. It just seems like an eternity ago. So that's, that's basically the, the, the explanation she gave me. Okay. So, so let me ask you this, just logically, is it logical for me to suggest that if I am practicing Scientology and I recall, oh my God, I'm somebody who used to be a Scientologist that died in the 60s or 70s. And I recall the name. Logically, they should be attaching my PC folders to their PC folder, right? Um, so, well, first of all, uh, there's something interesting there, which is when somebody says, oh, I last lifetime such and such, it's not always the case. I, I would say, I would guess it's not even often the case that the auditor, auditor actually takes that as something that's notable or Isn't actionable. The needle um, Isn't the needle floats? Well, Doesn't it be like everything? Like, oh, you, you, you got it. You nailed it. N- no, no, it's not exactly used in that way. I, um, okay. ju- in fact, ju- just by that question, <laughs> just by that question, I can see that uh, that yeah that we um, you know that your level of sort of Scientology indoctrination has not reached the <laughs> <laughs> reached the level that mine once did. Uh, no, so you a floating needle is not that. It's not it, it's it's not that it means that specific thing is true or not true. It just means essentially that the charge that you had is now no longer there. And so the interpretation of why that is is up to sort of the circumstance in the auditor. But anyway, uh, to answer your question, if I'm in a session and I say, hey, I just realized last lifetime I was uh, Jane, you know, McCluskey, and I lived at this address and I whatever, whatever. And by the way, I was uh, in Scientology. 
my understanding, and I have no way to prove this or disprove this, but what I believed when I was in Scientology was that they would check to see privately without mentioning anything if that person existed and had a PC folder and if the details that you said lined up, and yet at they still would not definitely um, link you to because... Uh, I mean, they would make note of it, but they wouldn't literally, like, rubber band them together. And the reason for that is kind of a deeper, weirder area, which is that both you can remember false lives and fa uh, false uh, uh, memories. Um, so you can remember being Cleopatra all the way down to every last millisecond and even get some details right, and it still wasn't you. And that's actually because of a couple of reasons. One is that you, um, you know, obviously you could have been around that person or you could have been somebody really obsessed with that person or thinking about that person. And or you could have been, you know, you could be, uh, you know, adding this to your actual memory. So it's like your distorted memory. You're, you're, you're superimposing these ideas onto it. Okay, so that's kind of the first reason. And the second reason is, a little bit even weirder, which is that you could have been a body Satan of that person, not the actual person. Oh, wow. I never heard that. Wow. Right. And so <laughs> just saying I used to be so-and-so, my understanding of it, and I'm sure some kind of, uh, you know, class five auditor types can maybe clear it up or some high level CSs would know this, but my understanding of the situation is that if you said I was so-and-so in a past life, they would not necessarily agree that you were that person, even if you recounted many details. Well, a couple of things about what you just said is, is you, you made a point about Cleopatra, which I thought was kind of funny because I've never heard anyone, and I'm not the first person to say this, I don't think, I've never heard anyone say they were Hal from the hardware store down the street. They're either some famous person from yeah. history or a great space explorer or, or something notable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, it, and the other side of that, of course, is they all seem to be the same old, you know, ancient famous people. Like there's a great deal of people who used to all used to be Cleopatra at any given moment. You know, I mean, you could get together 10,000 people. Yep. And it seems like 200 of them all used to be Cleopatra, you know? And if Scientology wants to explain that away, they can easily say they were all body fatings, basically, if they want to believe everybody and say it's true. Yeah, I mean, the body fatings thing would be less uh, less common, I would guess. I think that it would, it would be um, more of a borrowed valence. I, there's actually a different word for that, but it, basically you're you're uh, out of valence, but you're actually taking someone else's valence. And so, in other words, you were in some way, were or are, uh, being controlled by someone else's, uh, by someone else, and so you are taking their valence. And so, um, the way that I thought about people who said that they were Cleopatra when I was a Scientologist was that they felt um, a sense of insufficiency that they somehow attributed to the sort of beauty and, you know, allure or whatever their thing was about Cleopatra. 
And then that made them sort of want that so bad that they actually made it real in their minds. And so, long story short, in Scientology terms, they were sort of assu- – oh, assuming the valence. That's what it's called. They were assuming that valence. Do you think they assume that valence sometimes just to get the session over with? Um, I mean, that's, a, that's a, another question where I would have answered differently before. Before, I would have said no. Because those types of people, you know, if, if you're a Scientologist, you're not, you're not trying to get the session over with. You're trying to get through the incidents. But, gotcha. again, since having heard so many other people, uh, I think, yeah, there's definitely people who are just kind of like, sure, oh, here, here you go. Yeah, I was so-and-so, whatever. You know, get me out of here. <laughs> nice. Okay. Um, good answer. Uh, so... There is. I talked to a lot of people who were children in Scientology, and you know, a few of them at the different ranches. And I get kind of a mixed story from most of them, and not not that they were they're not contradicting themselves, but it wasn't that bad or it was the worst. There were sexual assaults, but not abuse. There was abuse, but not sexual assaults. Is it kind of like basically anything else where it was just kind of hit or miss, but the bad things we see are because of the enabling of the open interpretation of punishment? I said a lot um, there for one question. Sorry. Yeah, that's that's kind of uh, that's kind of two two or three questions there, I think, right. or, or at least two or three answers. So, um, the first point about the different ranches and the different facilities and whatnot, the thing that people have to understand is that. There are you could categorize these different places in sort of different rungs, like different levels. So, for example, there was a place called the Mojave Desert School, right? That that was a place. And then there was like you know the Mace Kingsley Ranch in um, Palmdale, and then there was a Mace Kingsley Ranch in uh, uh, outside of Reserve, New Mexico, in a little nothing area called Cruzville, which is the second, you know, it's, that's what people call the New Mexico ranch. And then there was also the ranch at Tahoe. And then there was also the ranch, um, at Agua Dulce. That was all, those four were the Ma- Mace Kingsley ranch. And there was even a cut. There was also a period of time called the trailers when they were in trailers. Um, so all of those time periods were actually, you know, slightly or drastically different than each other. By the time I came to the New Mexico ranch, it was way different than the 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 Palmdale one. I mean, totally different. Um, and so it really depends on who you ask and when they were there and where were they, et cetera. So, for example, when I was at the first ranch, I didn't directly know of any molestation or sexual stuff. But then again, I was eight, right? So I didn't have the same experience as one of the teenage girls who was live who was literally living in a room right next to Wally Hanks's room. I was in the garage with the other boys. So that would have been a different experience. But then on the other hand, um, in the New Mexico ranch where I was there for three years, um, there wasn't, I, I can't think of any sexual abuse that happened from a staff member to a, uh, student, I guess you would call them, when I was there. But then again, I wasn't there the whole time. You see what I'm saying? And I wasn't everywhere and I wasn't a girl. So 
from my experience, that didn't happen, but it maybe it did happen. And so my experience of the New Mexico ranch was that it was a lot less physical abuse, although there was some of that. It was a lot less, and it was a lot more of a sort of a structural abuse. The entire structure of how it all worked was really fleshed out, and they'd really gotten it kind of. They had really gotten it all figured out on how to really trap you and how to sort of coerce you into doing this and that, and the sort of longer war of attrition that they would that they would uh, um, um, wage against you. So it's different experiences. And then we would get people who would come to the ranch who had come from even Delphi. And their experience at Delphi, they might say, well, I thought it sucked, but it was way better than this place. Um, So the people sitting next to them in Delphi who never went to the ranch, if you ask them about Delphi, they might say it was really sucked. So it, it is really kind of relative to what you've seen. And um, and that's just the you know that's the the human nature I think is that we all are in our own experiences. Um, but I would say this: if people are, if people, and I'm not saying that this is what your question meant, but if people are thinking, oh, you know, maybe just a lot of this is made up. Um, well, I don't know if other people are making stuff up, but I can tell you that. Um, Tara Riley, who was on the show with me, I knew her at the ranch. I was there with her. I know her very well, right? And I know the stuff that she's talking about is not lies, and I know that it's not like, oh, I'm going to twist this, and I'm going to make this more serious-sounding. And um, I know that when she tells me that she has you know, PTSD from the ranch, I know she's not lying. I know she isn't. And it's not because I have a warm you know, feeling for her. It's because... I myself have talked to doctors who have said, you know, the the symptoms that you're that you're describing to me, they sound like PTSD, where I've had nightmares about the ranch. I've gone through multiple years of my life where 100 percent or, you know, 95 to 100 percent of every dream that I ever had was me being back at the ranch. And people go, that's PTSD. And I say, well, I, you know. I know what PTS is, but I don't know what PTSD is. You mean PTS type D? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, literally. So, um, you know, has anyone ever lied about anything in Scientology? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I'll give you that, of course, I guess, you know. Um, but um, I know that when people describe the ranch, they're telling the truth. I know plenty of people from the ranch to this day. Now, the other thing to note, though, is that um, like anything, nobody wants to hear about the time when we were all sitting on the back porch talking, right? That that also happened, but that's not that's not entertaining. It's not interesting. It's not eventful. It's not notable. It's just people standing there talking. So, if the question is, did every second at the ranch uh, was every second at the ranch tantamount to absolute physical and mental torture in every way? Well, no, nothing is that way. I mean, even people who are tortured in prisons have some moment where they're by themselves and they feel a moment of peace and they are eating some food and they're okay. I mean, it's nothing is always bad or always good. Right. Um, so yeah, the ranch was not a hundred percent bad all run by evil people, but a lot of bad stuff happened there. And a lot of, um, you know, a lot of arguably criminal things happened. A lot of certainly criminal things happened. A lot of immoral things happened. 
and um, and most or all of it was done with the express permission um, and or the justifications uh, stemming from the tr- the official Church of Scientology organization, not just oh these are some rogue renegades doing their thing. I mean, there's literally Sea Org members showing up at the ranch doing inspections. This is not a like nobody knew type of thing. Right. They should be able to see something's not right. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, the point is that they this was affiliated with the church, uh, quote unquote. It it was a part of the Church of Scientology. It was not as they try to they try to paint it off as like, oh, Wally was just some some guy who hasn't you know we had had nothing to do with him in thirty years. We don't you know. It's like, no, uh, you guys, you got, he was fine in the church uh, up until he died. Wow. So I, I, I can't remember what the last part of that question was because there's several in there. But, um, yeah, that, that's how I feel about sort of the differences in experiences that you hear about. And, you know, I understand that if you're in the public, you're just an average person listening to these stories, it can be very cloudy and sort of murky and sort of a little bit confusing as to, like, is this real? Like, I hear all this weird stuff. Um, yeah, you know, there were times when uh, people smiled. Yes, there are <laughs> pictures of people smiling. Correct. Yeah, not every second was was people pulling, you know, toenails out. Um, but all in all, I feel that it was a uh, a highly dysfunctional environment, and I feel like um, uh, it was it stunted. Um, a lot of growth, and it and it really gave a lot of emotional damage to to myself and others. And you know what? It, I'll even go one further and tell you: Look, I I saw I've seen kids come to the ranch, have no seem to have no problems, do the entire program, and then go home, and seems like they did just fine. And so you might say, well, well, okay, if he can do it, why can't everybody else? And um, you know, everyone's different. Uh, we couldn't all do it, and uh, and, and that's. I, I don't think we, we should have been punished for that. Um, so, yeah, different experiences, different places, different times, uh, periods. And w- and the final thing, I know I'm sort of rambling endlessly, but yeah, the final thing here is that when we're talking about these Scientology places, we're talking about places from the ni- early 1980s all the way through this decade. So we're talking about 30 years of stuff. So, yeah, there's a lot of different experiences. Okay, so I, th- I think my general point was at the end there of that question was I-, I think there could have been a ranch that was run, I guess it didn't actually happen too many places, but was run perfectly fine just based on the staffing they had. If the staffing they had was full of all good intentioned people doing all the right things, things would have been fine. But when you do get that bad seed or two that shouldn't be in some kind of power of authority and they're doing whatever they want it's accepted does that sound like a, a, a right assessment of that a proper assessment um if you're it well i i don't know if what you're saying is that uh the ranch idea could have worked except for the sort of bad seeds is that what you're asking Wait, the people running the ranch that were abusive like if 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 you happen to be fortunate enough to have a staff full of people who actually uh, weren't abusive, then it just would have been fine. But when it's abusive people, 
it's the same difference because there was no policing of the of, of the way they ran these locations. Um, I would I would uh, if you're talking about the Mace Kingsley Ranch and uh, particularly, I would I would probably disagree with you there, um, for a couple of reasons. Okay. So, um. There's one thing that I should mention, which is, uh, again, also not covered in the show, which is that the ranch leadership changed very often. I mean, there are at least five different executive directors that I could name that ran the place. One was uh, 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 Shirley Young, who was a a former uh, CMO. Mike Rinder knew her. Uh, There was Sherry Faust. There was Paul Gillette, who was Wally's uh, uh, nephew. There was Wally Hanks. There was uh, Cindy Blakesley, uh, Molly Baxter. I, I can't remember if I said her already, but Molly Baxter. That's six right there, and there's more even. And so um, even at the very top, there was a constant sort of uh, power struggle, it seemed, at, at some times. And so there was a lot of people there, and I don't think all of them were sort of you know bad apples necessarily. Um, you know, Certainly some of them were trying to do whatever they thought was, was right. So that's the first minor, minor point. But um, a second point is that um, all of the staff there, um, the staff was split into kind of two different categories. You had one which were just staff members, like, oh, I work at the ranch and that's what I do. And generally those people were kind of like lifers, like they were just, they were there when I was eight, they were there when I was 14, they were there when I was 17 and I finally left. They were just, were always going to be there. People like Scott Hewlett and Ross Hewlett and, um, you, you know, Mike Shower and these other sort of, uh, you know, kind of society's rejects that didn't have a, any kind of skill or anything. And so they sort of became these professional child sort of abusers. Um, and so you might say, well, they're all bad apples, but it's like, well, how many bad apples are we talking about here? And then I think the really major point, though, for me is that Let's take your hypothetical in, in, into play, and let's say, hey, you show up at the Mace Kingsley Ranch, every single one of the staff members there is totally well-intentioned, totally well-behaved, and applying Scientology the best they can, and they have all the best intentions. Well, here's the thing, though. The purpose of the ranch is contradictory to the teachings of Scientology in the first place, I would argue. So what I mean by that is that you know, Lafayette was very clear about, you know, in me- on many occasions that you can't force people or compel people or trick people into getting Scientology. You can't entrap them. You can't, you know, it has to be totally done in a free will. That's what they want to do. And yet these places are, you know, structurally designed specifically to take people who do not want to do it and coerce them into doing it. And so I would argue that even if Scientology were absolutely correct about everything and the technology was perfect and everything was wonderful and beautiful, this type of stru- uh, this type of facility would not work still. Okay, so I want to ask you about that because the word out on the street is uh, most or all of the ranches have closed. Also, there's no fair game, and no one disconnects it doesn't want to. Uh, but, uh, but assuming all the ranches closed, the only location I'm aware of is in Clearwater of the Mace Kingsley Family Center. 
So where do you? There's still kids, I, I would imagine. Where do you think the kids are now? They can't all go to one place, can they? The kids, where are the kids from the ranch, you mean? Well, where where they would send kids to the ranch in 1990s, whatever, where are they sending the kids today? Because if it's true that the ranches are closed, I imagine they're sending the kids somewhere. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, uh, Unfortunately for me, I'm, you know, I'm I'm 36 now, so... (laughs) I don't know any kids anymore, and I don't know any Scientologists, but um, I I understand the question. It's an interesting question. I I don't know where they would be sending kids. I was just asking what you thought might be happening. Hello? Yeah, sorry, you're breaking up there. Um, Yeah, no, I I understood the question. I I was answering up up there. Um, So what what I was saying is, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a old man now and I, I don't know any kids and I, and I don't know any um, Scientologists but it's a really interesting question because I, I understand the, the point which is well if you were a Scientologist and you had a kid and you had this problem that he didn't want to go up the bridge where, where would you be sending him and that's a really interesting question I don't know the answer but I imagine there's probably you know there must be something and um, the ranches as far as I know they're closed and the reason I say that is because well, I mean, I know that the ranch, the Maze King, the ranch is closed. But if the question is, have they opened another one? I don't think that they have because the Maze King, the ranch, uh, you know, especially the New Mexico version, relied heavily on advertising. They had a website and they they sent out all these flyers and they took out ads in Scientology magazines and they really were trying to, you know, get those kids in there. And we haven't seen any of that. Now, the original ranch did not work that way. The original ranch was all word of mouth. So it is possible that there is a place now. Um, and then as far as the the Mace Kingsley Family Center, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, Debbie Mace and Carol Kingsley, uh, you know, they, they were together. I, I believe that they were lovers, actually, um, they were they were uh they're both lesbians apparently and then um you know (laughs) yeah they're they're one one and then i guess debbie and carol they they kind of got to the point where they couldn't be together this is this is a a lot of hearsay so you know don't anybody uh, quote me but i this yeah this is this is what i the, the word on the street is and then um and then basically carol you know uh, when it got married and everything like that, and they so they kind of broke it off. So there really isn't a a a Mace Kingsley in in the sense of Debbie Mace and Carol Kingsley. That doesn't really exist. It's now just Carol Kingsley, and Carol Kingsley, um, you know, she obviously was involved in the original uh, Mace Kingsley School and then the Mace Kingsley Ranch. I think probably she is not part of any kind of ranchy type of situation now i think she's probably just focused on um exploiting the scientology parents in and around uh clearwater and if i were her and i were you know had her viewpoints that would probably be a smart move because you know look dealing with troubled kids as they call it is it's not i mean it's not fun 
It's probably very lucrative, but given all the flap, you know, that all the, the crazy stuff and the bad press and the this and the that, it's like, okay, let's let's just deal with uh, parents and kids who, who are ready to be indoctrinated and not kind of try to, you know, struggle. But your question is extremely important and interesting of, well, where what are they doing with the kids that don't want to do it now? And that's I, I have to think about that. I don't know who to ask, and I don't. There, there was no way I can really get an answer without someone leaving today that's seen it. Jeez. Um, All right. Um, do you think the abuses are still going on? Because the the system's still the same. Might not be the same locations, but the, the, I feel like there's an enabling. Am I overstating that? Do you think? Um, no, and actually, let me jump back a little bit to where you, because I didn't address this part yet, where you said, uh, uh, oh, fair game is supposedly disconnect, you know, is over, and, and you know, you, you're kind of alluding to the sort of PR uh, message that Scientology is say, oh, oh, disconnection, that's, you know, it's old news, this is all old news. Um, so I can kind of shed a little bit of light on how that works in Scientology. Mm-hmm. Um, Scientology, Scientologists and I don't want to speak for everybody, but l- let me just put it this way. The general culture of Scientology that I was in was that um, lying is not what we want to do, but if we have to, we will. But what's preferable to that is technically tell the truth and just present it in a way that's obviously misleading. And so, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, for example... It's like a Scientologist who's being honest would not say, yes, we believe in God and uh, we, you know, we recognize God as God and whatever. Now, the website tries to sort of suggest that and, oh, we even have a God dynamic and everything. But if you pay close attention to the wording, they're very careful to not specifically literally say it. And the reason for that is because they're lying. They're lying in this sort of common sense of where you're being mistruthful, although from a sort of legal sense, they're not lying. So it's, it's kind of the sort of, you know, we believe in a higher entity. Well, what does that mean? That can mean anything. I mean, literally can mean anything. It can mean, I believe that there is a ceiling above me because that is an entity which is higher than me. And yet they take advantage of the fact that people don't assume that you're that um, malicious to mean something that way, and they assume when you say, we believe there's a higher entity that you're talking about God. They, they prey on this sort of um, subliminal shortcuts that we have to, to understanding communication. Um, and so anyway, when they say things like, oh, the RPF, yeah, we don't do that anymore, um, I can promise you that all that they've done to do that is they say, okay, the RPF is no more. Uh, by the way, we're starting something new called the RRPF, which is right. totally different, and you wear a different outfit. Yep. And so they can they can have their integrity and tell uh, the public or whoever, hey, the RPF is over, and they're True. not technically lying. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And yeah. so that's just kind of the way that they roll. And so when they say like, for example, when they say, oh, people don't disconnect unless uh, you know they they wanted to, it's their own choice. Again, it's just misleading. It's like we gave them an ultimatum of us or them, essentially, and they made their choice. There you go, freedom of choice. It's a similar argument to saying, well, he chose to jump off the building. Yeah, but you had a gun to his head, and you were pushing him. Right. 
And then you said either you jump off or I'm kill your whole family. And then, oh, look at him. Freedom of choice. It's, you know, I mean, obviously that's extreme, but it's that type of logic of like, yeah, okay, sure. They had a choice, you know? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to just do a little bit here on this. I know, um, so I haven't seen your video with Aaron yet, uh, discussing his conversation with, with, with his name, Gear. Yeah. Uh, So... I don't want to step on that, and this is recording before his aired, but this will be playing after it aired. So most people listening have heard that conversation, so hopefully it's not retreading too much. Um, you talked a little bit about religion there, and I find that to be an interesting question um, that Aaron asked you was, is there a difference between a cult and a religion, and which one is Scientology? And just to recap, I believe Gear's answer was, what's the difference? There's no difference. It's all the same. Religions are cults. Cults are religion. It just depends. Or something to that extent. Um, am, I, am I recapping that correctly, you think? Um, he, he kind of copped out of it. He essentially, uh, he's an engineer of some kind, probably a computer engineer, it seems. So he, he basically said, uh, well, it's not an or like in human language because, you know, normally when people say or, they mean one and or the or. other. Yeah. So he kind of said, oh, it's 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 not, a you know, that's more of like an XOR in, right, um, exactly. in computing. So he basically said it's not like an XOR where only one of them can be true. It's more like, a, you know, or in programming, which is basically that either one can be true. At least one needs to be true, but both can also be true. Anyway, it's a, you know, it's a very uh, engineering type of way to to answer it. But then, if I recall correctly, he doesn't actually say what he says. He kind of just says it's actually irrelevant, and 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 he thinks it's a cult. And he, oh no, I'm sorry. He says he thinks it's a cult, and it, he thinks it's a religion. Right, that's both. what it is. Yeah, 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 yeah both. Um, I, I disagree with him there, and I think that uh, Aaron agrees with him. I, I disagree with both of them, actually. What are their reasons for saying it's a religion again? Um, well, I don't remember exactly. I can't remember exactly what you said, but I did have a conversation with Aaron, and his his, you know, he had, there was a couple points there, um, but I think it revolved a bit around the sort of mysticism involved with it, the sort of you're you know believing in satans and body satans alone kind of makes it religion-esque and so on by um, legal terms it might okay so we'll finish that thought and that conversation about the cult versus religion uh next week as well as talk about people speaking out and if there's a too much speaking out or not enough or well uh We'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. Of course, 10 questions next week with Nathan Rich. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Got something out of it. Um, in the meantime, uh, until then, stay connected. And that about sums it up. If I speak for your followers and I speak for your ex-followers and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says 
don't listen to your mum and dad. Don't talk to your mum and dad. That's bad. Yeah. Wrong. I remember sitting there wishing I could just scream out loud and beg for help. But I knew if I did that, I would never see Mark again. This is the thing about real life. You can't experience the great things without the bad things. I felt like it would probably do better off if we didn't exist. And, um, you know, Pat came up with a plan on, on how to end it. He talks about a seven-year-old child. Mm-hmm. Even, if, even if he's referring to actually an adult. So let's say we change that to an adult. You know, the woman shudders because the man kids her even passionately. The fact is that he shudders. You do a big apology to me and give me my kids back. I'm still shocked by the evil. I, I, yes, even to this day, when I see a video of a former friend or family member, I'm like, this is pure evil at work.